The first of my posts was a focus summary of Part 4, Chapters 2 and 3. Raskolnikov and Razumihin hurry to Bakaleyev's to arrive before Luzhin. Razumihin asks who the man was coming out of Raskolnikov's apartment, and Raskolnikov tells him it was Fidri Gailov, the former employer who insulted his sister and who had just come to Petersburg after his wife died suddenly. He says they must protect Dunya from him, and Razumihin not only says he will, but thanks Raskolnikov for asking him. Raskolnikov asks whether Razumihin got a good look at the man leaving his apartment, not, as Razumihin thinks, because he wants to be sure he will recognize him again, but because he wants to be sure he is even real. He is concerned that the man was only a hallucination. Razumihin dismisses him as having been upset again. Razumihin says that while Raskolnikov was sleeping, he went to Porfiry's to rebuke him for his suspicions, but that it was no use. He couldn't speak in the right way, and Porfiry and Zamyatov didn't understand. He says it was all very stupid, but when he walked away, he had a reassuring thought. Why should he and Raskolnikov care about their suspicions? When the truth comes out, they can laugh at them in their shame. Raskolnikov thinks about what he will say to Porfiry the next day, and about what Razumihin will think when he knows the truth. In the corridor, they come upon Luzhin, and the three men go in together, Luzhin trying his best to enter with dignity and good manners, but looking put out. Pulcheria Alexandrovna invites them all to sit around a table. Luzhin waits for an explanation of why his demand that Raskolnikov not be present was disobeyed. Luzhin breaks the silence with polite questions about their journey and arrival. Pulcheria Alexandrovna tells him that if Razumihin hadn't been there to meet them, they would have been utterly lost, and she introduces the two. Luzhin looks at him sidelong, and says he already had the pleasure. Pulcheria breaks the uncomfortable silence that follows with her leading item of conversation, asking if he heard about the death of Marfa Petrovna. Luzhin says he had heard, and that he also heard Svidrigailov set out immediately for Petersburg, which distresses Pulcheria Alexandrovna, who says she is convinced that he has come to trouble Dunya and that he caused his wife's death. Luzhin disputes that, but says he is in agreement about the man's character, calling him the most depraved and abjectly vicious of men. He says he has reason to believe that Marfa Petrovna rescued him not only from debt, but from criminal charges of brutal homicide. A woman named Reslik had a niece living with her, a deaf and dumb girl of fifteen, whom she hated and abused. One day, the girl was found hanging, and it was ruled a suicide, but afterward information was given that she had been cruelly outraged, which I gather has to mean raped, by Svidrigailov. Also, it was rumored that Svidrigailov's servant Philip, whom I gather has to be the ghost, Filka, also hanged himself as a consequence of the ill-treatment he received from Svidrigailov. Dunya says she had heard, on the contrary, that Philip was a queer fellow 
who hanged himself on account only of Svidrigailov's mockery. An illusion is aggravated with her for undertaking his defense. Dunya begs them all not to say another word about Svidrigailov, at which point Raskolnikov interjects that he has just seen him. He tells his family of Luzhin's intentions, and says, too, that Dunya is to have three thousand roubles from Marfa Petrovna, at which news Pulcheria Alexandrovna exclaims, "'Thank God!' They ask what he wants with Dunya, and when Raskolnikov says he will tell them, "'Afterwards,' Luzhin makes a movement to go. But Dunya asks him to stay, to have the explanation he wanted from her mother. He says he does not wish to discuss it in front of Raskolnikov, but Dunya says the dispute between them must be explained. If Raskolnikov was in the wrong, he will apologize. If the dispute between them is not resolved, she will act as an impartial judge and choose between them. Luzhin says huffily that he is offended by this declaration that puts him on the same level with an impertinent boy, and that shows how little she values the obligation between them. She is outraged that he takes her willingness to set aside her own brother for him, if necessary, as valuing him too little. Luzhin addresses the matter of contention to Pulcheria Alexandrovna, saying that the previous day, Raskolnikov insulted him by misrepresenting something he had once said to her. Raskolnikov made it sound as if he had malicious intentions in desiring to marry a poor girl, and as if he had gotten that impression from her. He asks her to reassure him, and to explain precisely what she told Raskolnikov in her letter. Pulcheria Alexandrovna says she does not remember, and anyway, the fact that they are there shows that they did not suspect him of malice. She then accuses Luzhin of misrepresenting Raskolnikov in his own letter. Raskolnikov interjects sharply that Luzhin had slandered a girl he doesn't know, and that Luzhin is not worth the little finger of that unfortunate girl. When Luzhin asks whether he would allow her to associate with his mother and sister, he says he already has. Luzhin calls the questions between them at an end, and he gets up to go, asking them in future to spare him of similar meetings. Pulcheria Alexandrovna is offended at his treating them as though every desire of his is a command. He responds hotly that she only feels free to say so because they now have Marfa Petrovna's money, and Dunya observes that this suggests he had been relying on their helplessness. He says he will leave, and no longer hinders Svidrigailov's proposals to Dunya, and she turns white with anger and tells him to go away. He says that after such a dismissal, he will never come back. Then, when Dunya says she doesn't want him to, he says he has grounds to protest her dismissal, since he has taken on expenses for them. Dunya is in a rage and before he goes, Luzhin makes one more parting insult. He says that he had deigned to accept her even in the face of gossip about her reputation, and that he realizes now he should have listened to it. At that, Razumihin leaps up and says, Does the fellow want his head smashed? And Raskolnikov tells him to leave, or... 
Pyotr Petrovitch turns to go, his heart filled with vindictive hatred. But by the time he gets downstairs, he imagines again that all might be set right where the ladies are concerned. He had never dreamed that two destitute, defenseless women could escape from his control. He had a high opinion of his intelligence, his appearance, and most of all, his money. He had felt genuinely indignant at Dunya's ingratitude to him, having taken her despite her reputation. Even though he knew it all to be false gossip, disbelieved by the townspeople, it made him feel like a heroic benefactor. The loss of Dunya is unthinkable to him, because she so perfectly filled the role of the sort of wife he had long dreamed about, a woman virtuous, poor, educated, and timid, who looked upon him as a savior. Avdotya Romanovna was even more than he had dreamed of, and, he believed, given her circumstances, would be more slavishly devoted. He cherished the idea of a wife who could help him rise into a higher class in society, and now it was all in ruins. He is appalled at the absurdity that a simple joke was taken so seriously, and he resolves to smooth things over the next day. He feels a passing fear about Razumihin, but reassures himself that a fellow like that could never be put on a level with him. The man he dreads is Svidrigailov. Back at Bakaleyev's, Dunya apologizes to her mother and brother for having been tempted by such a base man, and Polhiria Alexandrovna says God has delivered them. They are all delighted at this rupture, but especially Razumihin, who feels as if a weight had fallen off his heart. Dunya asks Raskolnikov what Svidrigailov said to him, and Raskolnikov offers an account of their conversation, saying Svidrigailov wishes to give her a present of ten thousand rubles, because he doesn't want her to marry Luzhin. Raskolnikov says he is convinced Luzhin has a motive, and a bad one, but he cannot determine what it is. He also observes that the man appears mad, and deeply affected by the death of Marfa Petrovna. Dunya thinks to herself with a shudder that she is sure he has a terrible plan. Razumihin vows to track him out. He says Raskolnikov has given him leave to do so, and he asks Dunya to give him leave too. She smiles and holds out her hand to him, and Polhiria Alexandrovna watches them, reassured by the three thousand rubles. Razumihin asks them to stay in Petersburg, and says he has planned a capital enterprise. He can borrow some money, and, if they lend him another thousand, he can start his own publishing company. He knows the industry well, and he knows how to capitalize on its weaknesses. Dunya's eyes shine, and she says she loves the idea. Raskolnikov, too, supports it. In the midst of their conversation, Raskolnikov picks up his hat and turns to go out. Razumihin and his family are incredulous that he would leave at such a moment, and he replies that from their reactions you would think he was leaving forever. Then he mutters that perhaps it is true. His mother asks what is the matter with him, and he says that he has decided it is time they part. He will come to them later, when it's possible, 
but for now they are not to inquire about him and to leave him alone. He says goodbye to them, leaving them in a state of great alarm. Dunya calls him a heartless egoist and asks how he can do this to his mother, but Razumihin tries to reassure her that he is not heartless, but mad, and he runs out after him. Raskolnikov tells Razumihin to go back, and to be with his mother and sister the next day and always. Razumihin asks where he is going, and what is the matter with him, and Raskolnikov turns to look at him, and says never to ask him about anything, and to leave him, but not them. Then the two men stand looking at each other, in silence, with Raskolnikov's eyes piercing into his soul, until suddenly he starts. An understanding had passed silently between them, and Razumihin turns pale. Raskolnikov says to go back to them, and goes quickly out of the house. Razumihin goes back and makes every effort to soothe and comfort the ladies, and in that moment takes his place with them as a son and a brother. The next of my posts was called A Man Among Villains. In these chapters, between Lusian's abominations, the exposure of Svidrigailov's crimes, and Raskolnikov the murderer sitting in the corner acting as moral judge, we have ended up in a real den of iniquity. Thank God for Razumihin. Lusian is such a cad. A colorful one, but a cad. His efforts at dignity when he sees that Raskolnikov has appeared against his wishes convey, of course, not dignity, but self-important pretentiousness. His lingering in the passage and taking off his coat so that he could walk in alone and proud while he struggled to stifle his indignation, just made him look pathetic. I will always recall the description that he, quote, drew out a cambric handkerchief, reeking of scent, and blew his nose with an air of a benevolent man who felt himself slighted, unquote. His handkerchief nose-blowing reeks of scent and pretension. I found it hilarious that in his confrontation with Pulcheria Alexandrovna, he lays out his view and her slander of it, and I could hardly tell the difference. For those of you who have read The Fountainhead, it reminds me of the scene with Keating and Dominique in which he rebukes her for her vulgarity, but then is satisfied when she says exactly the same thing couched in elegant language. He said, quote, that marriage with a poor girl who has had experience of trouble is more advantageous from the conjugal point of view than with one who has lived in luxury, since it is more profitable for the moral character. Raskolnikov reported his mother as saying that, quote, What pleased you most was that she was a beggar, because it was better to raise a wife from poverty so that you may have complete control over her and reproach her with your being her benefactor. Unquote. Now, to be sure, he didn't say the control part out loud, but if we had any doubt that's what he meant, it was demonstrated conclusively in the next chapter. His treatment of Dunya is appalling. He threatens to hold against her the expenses he has gone to on her behalf, the expense of sending her trunk to Petersburg on a cart. 
though she has conducted herself with admirable and painstaking patience. He sarcastically accuses her of being reckless and cavalier because she has come into Marfa Petrovna's money, and of being tempted by the proposals of Svidrigailov. And he acts the role of the generous benefactor for having deigned to accept her despite her ruined reputation, when he knew well that the accusations were undeserved and that the record had been set straight in the eyes of the community. He's disgusting, but not as disgusting as Svidrigailov. In the course of their conversation, we learn the greater atrocities of Svidrigailov. Though Dunya doubts it, I think we are meant to believe that his abuse of a servant drove the man to suicide. And more horrific still, he raped a deaf and dumb girl of fifteen, driving her, too, to a self-inflicted death. Then we have Raskolnikov, who casts aspersions on Luzhin, saying to Dunya when Luzhin displays his true character, "'Aren't you ashamed now?' and on Svidrigailov, who is sure is guilty of a bad motive. But meanwhile, we are struck throughout the description of the wickedness of Svidrigailov at the parallels with Raskolnikov's own crime. There was an old woman, who lent small sums of money at interest, who had a niece living with her, whom she abused, and the helpless girl died as a consequence of his brutality. Standing head and shoulders above them all, there is the honest and kind Razumihin, who thanked Raskolnikov for the opportunity to look out for Dunya, who, when Dunya is maligned and abused by Luzhin, leapt out of his seat and threatened to bash his head in, and who, I gather, will dedicate the rest of his life to serving the happiness of Pulcheria Alexandrovna and Dunya as a son and a brother. When I recorded this chapter, I choked on that word, brother. It seems to me to suggest that the revelation of Raskolnikov's crime has somehow doomed him never to realize his romantic ambitions with Dunya. The thought of that absolutely broke my heart. The last of my posts was called Moments. As some of you may know, my recording studio is my bedroom closet. Sometimes, after I record chapters of Crime and Punishment, I emerge from my closet, bleary-eyed and blinking at the transition back into everyday reality. It really does sometimes feel like going through some portal from the dark, grimy streets of Petersburg and the searing intensity of the moral and psychological trials I have endured there into a universe sunlit and maybe even a little frivolous. That's not to say that I think my life is frivolous, or that a world of dark intensity is superior to it. But the trials we undergo in Dostoevsky's world are grand-scale and concentrated, while the challenges I face on an ordinary day are less profound and far more diffuse. But to carry this metaphor just a little further, once my eyes have adjusted to the light of reality— I'm left with sharpened sight, having thought and judged and felt with such intensity, I'm better able to see how, in my own life, to better think and judge and feel. Sorry if that's groping and abstract, 
I can only hope that you've had something of the same experience and can at least sense what I mean. When, later, I reflect on crime and punishment and allow myself to travel back through that portal to the moments of greatest intensity, I think a few will always stand out. A few scenes that were wrought with such craftsmanship of setup, with such depth of psychological insight, with such life-giving detail of description, and with such profundity of moral import that they will be indelibly imprinted on my mind. Sonia, quivering beneath her shawl, while Katerina Ivanovna kneels down to kiss her feet. Raskolnikov, staring silently into the eyes of the eerily entranced Zamyatov, moving his mouth soundlessly, and deciding whether to continue toying with him or to have it all done with and confess. Marmeladov begging Sonia's forgiveness with his dying breaths, and falling face down on the floor, while his wife and children kneel, praying, on the ground before him. Porfiry Petrovich's coolly collected interrogation, and the vicious and terrible motive he uncovers for Raskolnikov's crime. And the dreams, all those captivating, chilling, unforgettable, and revelatory dreams. After these chapters, I can add Raskolnikov's wordless confession to Razumihin. We have long watched Razumihin make excuses for Raskolnikov, banish evidence that might prompt suspicion, and try his mightiest to believe that his friend is good. Raskolnikov wonders, and I wondered, and I'm sure you wondered, whether and how he will ever discover the truth, and what he will do when he does. But like every scene I have anticipated in this novel, when it comes, it is so much more riveting and powerful than I might have imagined. To have the two men just staring at each other in the hallway, Raskolnikov having just cut ties with his mother and sister, and Razumihin striving to play the role of his caretaker again, and having Raskolnikov communicate his confession with a silent and penetrating gaze. I was left breathless at that scene. Let me read it to you again. Quote, it was dark in the corridor. They were standing near the lamp. For a minute, they were looking at one another in silence. Razumihin remembered that minute all his life. Raskolnikov's burning and intent eyes grew more penetrating every moment, piercing into his soul, into his consciousness. Suddenly, Razumihin started. Something strange, as it were, passed between them. Some idea, some hint, as it were, slipped. Something awful, hideous, and suddenly understood on both sides. Razumihin turned pale. Do you understand now? said Raskolnikov, his face twitching nervously. Go back, go to them, he said suddenly, and turning quickly, he went out of the house. Unquote. I'd like to know what moments you will remember all your life.